Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. I need to remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter, and it's my pleasure to share the September 4th issue of Time magazine with you. We'll begin with something from the world of politics. Headline, Deja Vu. It's getting late early in the GOP primary as the front-runners' rivals struggle with the campaign's central question, how do you stop Trump? And this is by Molly Ball in Albia, Iowa. The Iowa voter had a question for Ron DeSantis, a plea of sorts on behalf of all the small-town people. Outsiders suggest we're the flyover country, the racists, the deplorables, the walnut sharpers. Jason Summers, a 53-year-old Republican activist who owns a small insurance business, tells the governor of Florida. Presidential candidates, he adds, come around every four years. They kiss our babies, pat us on the head, and send us on our way, and then they forget about us. How could the residents of Albia, Iowa, population 3,712, be sure that DeSantis would not abandon them, too. Less than an hour earlier, DeSantis had roared into town, juggernaut-style, disembarking from a bus emblazoned with his name and that of Never Back Down, his $100 million super PAC, trailed by a dozen advisors and security staff. DeSantis has vowed to visit all of Iowa's 99 counties, Albia's Monroe County would be number 31, precisely for moments like this one, a chance to commune with voters and perhaps even to have the sort of viral moment that would loft his struggling campaign back into contention for the GOP presidential nomination. Now he stood in a former church converted to a veterans wellness center, surrounded by a scrum of media cameras, and microphones extended to watch him take a swing at the softball Summers lobbed up. But, given the chance to offer some hint of emotion, DeSantis proceeds to answer the question like a standardized test. First, he says, the stereotypes about flyover country are not a narrative I've ever accepted. Then, he points out that while people may associate his state with places like Miami or Palm Beach or Central Florida theme parks, it also has a lot of those types of communities. They are important, DeSantis adds, in part because they produce many recruits for the military and law enforcement. But I do think the clash of values here but I do think the clash is kind of of elites on the coast is, these guys have really strong values here and they don't always like that, he concludes, without a flicker of passion. This is the man who was supposed to be the Trump slayer. Yet, as the 2024 campaign lumbers into gear, DeSantis has never looked less like a threat to the former president's chances of returning to office. Bloodied by a barrage of typically nasty Trump insults and millions in negative ads from Trump's allies, his campaign has been a litany of disappointment, declining steadily in the polls since its botched Twitter launch on May 24th. His culture war message is not moving voters. 
donors feel fret that he's not ready for prime time. Pundits pick apart his every stilted move. The campaign has recently undergone an extended reboot, laying off dozens of staff and replacing the campaign manager. Many of the same conservatives who once crowned him the future of the GOP are already declaring him toast. It's somehow both early and late in a Republican primary campaign of maximum consequence. The race will determine whether next year's election turns into the sequel that few Americans claim to want, Biden versus Trump, once again. Too early, rival campaigns and many voters say, for people to start paying attention and making up their minds about a primary season half a year away. And yet, it already feels too late for anyone to lay a finger on Trump, whose lead in polls stands at 30 or 40 points. The front-runner, meanwhile, has put forth the minimal imaginable effort, sleepwalking through rote speeches, jeering at federal law enforcement, visiting Iowa only a handful of times. He skipped campaign cattle calls, insulted the state's popular Republican governor, and danced around the abortion issue that animates many of the religious conservatives who make up the backbone of the GOP base. Just the week before the first Republican presidential debate on August 23rd in Milwaukee, he had not yet decided whether to bother showing up. And why should he? He is running away with this thing as rivals flounder and leap to his defense after each successive criminal indictment. Rather than condemn the actions that have now led to 91 state and federal charges, DeSantis, like most of the field, has bolstered Trump's claims of victimization, decrying the supposed weaponization of government, and vowing to pardon the former president if he is convicted. I think the Department of Justice is highly political. I think that the charges in D.C. are flimsy charges, DeSantis tells me in an interview, days before a Georgia grand jury hands down yet another Trump indictment for crimes against democracy. Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses on January 15th loom as the best chance to change the race's frozen trajectory. The state has a history of elevating long-shot, close-touch candidates, particularly those who win the hearts of religious conservatives. Many of these voters have continuing qualms about Trump whose lead over DeSantis is slightly smaller here than it is nationally. In polls, some 70% of potential caucus-goers say they are open to a non-Trump candidate. Yet DeSantis has failed to make it the two-man race many anticipated, and no one in the rest of the field is well, a well-credentialed group that includes current and former governors, a sitting senator, and Trump's own vice president, has ridden to take his place as Trump's chief rival. And so the candidates have descended on Iowa, blitzing the airwaves with commercials, patronizing small businesses, giving speeches to local groups. The state's Republican voters see America at a tipping point and want above all to find a candidate who can win the general election the longtime Iowa GOP chairman Jeff Kaufman tells me. They want to see the candidates up 
close and personal, to look them in the eye and hear it straight. On his recent swings through the state, DeSantis has held town hall meetings and meet and greets, popped into small town coffee houses, and traipsed through sweaty fairgrounds. We've got to run the long race, not the short race, DeSantis, newly installed campaign manager James Ulfmeyer tells me. It's back to basics. Follow your gut. Listen to the voters. Trump is not what is in the eyesight. It's the voters, the Iowans, the people who are struggling. DeSantis, like everyone else, wants to believe the campaign is about something else. The issues, the current president, the price of tea in China, when it is self-evidently about one thing and one thing only. The singular binary question that has perplexed the political system for so many years, can Trump be? In Albia, DeSantis takes a few more questions from locals and the media before being hustled back into his campaign bus, where he'll head off to the next flyover town, hit all his marks, make the intended contacts, and tick another county off the list. As the bus pulls out, I return to Jason Summers, who is chatting with the town's mayor on the steps of the former church. I bring up his poignant remark about politicians kissing babies and then forgetting about their promises. Did he feel Trump had done that? Summers thinks about the question. Honestly, I think just the opposite, he says. One of the strange things about President Trump was that while he didn't have that small-town politeness, he identified with the small-town issues. The hardness that Trump speaks with, they looked over because he was actually fighting for them. At a town hall in the Des Moines suburb of Ankeny, a man gets up to ask Tim Scott a question. Reading from a notebook, Steve Alexander, a ponytailed local in a beret and vest, informs the senator that he has a five-pronged test for candidates that he calls the five P's. On the first three, personality, politics, and performance, Scott has passed with flying colors. It boils down to the last two things, promises and policies, Alexander continues. One thing about Trump, he made promises and he kept them wherever it was possible. Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate and a devout Christian, has been rising modestly in the Iowa polls as DeSantis slips. His campaign, an affiliated super PAC, have blanketed the state with ads touting his sunny, aspirational appeal. A conventional rank-and-file Republican, he helped design Trump's 2017 tax cut bill and voted against both his impeachments, but did not object to certifying the 2020 election. Scott centers his campaign message on the idea that his life story puts the lie to liberal accusations of a racist society. So where do I start, he asks Alexander, grinning. Scott talks about his record and outlines a set of proposals he would pursue on issues like taxes, school choice, and opportunity zones. He speaks with feeling about his upbringing, sprinkling in religious references and folksy sayings. 
At one point, he describes Biden's spending policies as like a goose lost in a rainstorm. A capacity crowd has packed the airy venue, and Scott's easy banter with Governor Kim Reynolds has them laughing along. Afterwards, he takes questions from reporters, including one about a controversy DeSantis faces back home over proposed Florida educational standards. They say enslaved people sometimes benefit from skills they learned in bondage. Scott manages to attack the substance while seeming magnanimous at the same time. What slavery was really about was separating families, about mutilating humans and even raping their wives. It was devastating. I would hope that every person in our country, and certainly running for president, would appreciate that. But, he adds, people have bad days, and sometimes they even regret what they say. Longtime Iowa hands insist the race is far from over. Anything can happen, says David Young, a former member of Congress now serving in the Iowa State House. Mike Busselot, a state senator representing a swing district, says Trump is a polarizing figure among his Republican constituents, many of whom would prefer to hear about his vision for the future rather than personal grievances. What unites them all, Boussoulet says, is an intense focus on electability. Universally, it's the next election is too important. We need to win. Anti-Trump Republicans point to precedent to make the case that Iowans will slow his momentum. In the 2016 election, Trump cannonballed into the state, ignoring all the rules. He named a former apprentice contestant as a state campaign co-chair, brought a helicopter to the Iowa State Fair, and did little of the usual retail politicking. Most experts assumed the thrice-married former Democrat would not appeal to state partial to humble. Church-going candidates like the previous two caucus winners, former Governor Mike Huckabee and former Senator Rick Santorum, Senator Ted Cruz courted non-conservative voters with a data-fueled grassroots organization, while Senator Marco Rubio appealed to business-minded moderates, a typical GOP-based establishment split. Trump, meanwhile, built an entirely new kind of coalition. In dying former factory towns in eastern Iowa, I remember meeting crowds of blue-collar voters who, had, who would never be caught dead at a Rubio or Cruz event. Many had never caucused or weren't even Republicans. In the end, Cruz eked out a victory 28% to Trump's 24, with Rubio a close third at 23%. The caucus electorate hasn't fundamentally changed since 2016, says Dave Cochell a GOP consultant and advisor to Governor Reynolds. All those people still exist, and they haven't all become Trumpers, even if they're all defenders of the tribe. With the right pitch, Trump's current rivals have access to both Cruz's social conservatives and Rubio's establishmentarianism. Iowa is going to be really, really important, and I don't think it's a slam dunk for Trump, Cochell says. He's winning, no doubt about it, and somebody else has to catch some breaks. 
There's too many people in the field right now. The only way we're going to beat Donald Trump is by having one strong candidate against him. Conservative groups who view another Trump nomination as a sure ticket to loser town are carefully trying to pry his voters free, cognizant that reciting the former president's litany of well-known personal failings will merely trigger his tribe's defensive reflex. The Club for Growth's Win It Back, PAC, is airing ads featuring testimonials from Iowa voters who talk about their journey away from Trump. Americans for Prosperity Action, the the super PAC affiliated with billionaire Charles Koch, plans to rally its deep-headed pocket donors around a non-Trump candidate and will endorse later this year, officials say. Since late June, Americans for Prosperity's canvassers have been on the ground in the first four states to vote next year. When we're actually knocking on doors, talking to folks, we're finding people are open to thinking about the race more pragmatically, Drew Klein, the group Iowa, the group's Iowa director, tells me. In several days, attending events across the state for numerous candidates, I met many of the voters AFP and other anti-Trump groups are targeting. They voted for Trump against Biden and Hillary Clinton, with varying degrees of enthusiasm. But now they are tired of the drama and ready for a fresher face. They like what they hear from DeSantis, Scott, and others, and they feel they have plenty of time to make up their minds over the next five months. Talking to these earnest, enthusiastic Republicans, the race can indeed feel wide open. But when I asked them who they caucused for in 2016, these voters invariably say Cruz or Rubio, not Trump. For those trying to topple the front runner, the problem isn't the voters who are coming out to see them, it's the voters who aren't. The Lincoln Dinner is the Iowa GOP's big fundraising event, and on a Friday night in late July, more than 1,200 Republicans take their seats at tables laid with chicken and cheesecake in the Des Moines Convention Center. An event like this is a chance for an underdog to make a splash. The 13 candidates on the program range from Trump and DeSantis to businessman Perry Johnson and Pastor Ryan Binkley. The long-shot candidates would need a figurative lightning strike to put them into contention, yet still they won't risk the ire of the, the pro-Trump crowd. Only former GOP Congressman Will Hurd dares to rock the boat. Donald Trump is not running for president to make America great again or represent the people who voted for him, he says. Donald Trump is running for president to stay out of prison. And Heard is promptly booed off the stage. Trump is the last to speak. He walks on stage holding a folder with the presidential seal under one arm and proceeds to read his speech in a sing-song voice, barely looking up or departing from the script, with the notable exception of a couple of insults directed at DeSantis. I wouldn't take a chance on that one, he mutters to laughs. 
When Trump finishes, before the allotted 10 minutes are up, the room erupts in a riotous standing ovation. After the speeches, the candidates repair to hospitality suites along the concourse where voters can visit with them one-on-one. It's on the concourse that I run into Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire. A popular anti-Trump Republican who decided against running for president himself, Sununu is optimistic Trump will be vanquished. As a quasi-incumbent, of course he's going to be way ahead, Sununu says, but, he insists, people know he can't win and they are looking for someone else. The former president's team can hardly believe how lucky they've been. Trump's campaign started under the shadow of a disastrous midterm election, a dinner with a white supremacist, and a lackluster November announcement. But the revelations that Biden and Mike Pence also improperly took home classified documents, along with the ongoing legal saga involving Hunter Biden, Joe's son, have helped muddy the waters despite pundits' protestations that those cases are orders of magnitude less severe than the criminal charges Trump faces in New York, Florida, Washington, and Georgia, which range from falsifying business records to conspiring to defraud the United States. And Trump's own rivals have echoed his argument that the various prosecutions are politically motivated. It's a message that has a resonance with Republican voters. Trump campaign strategist Chris Lasavitya tells me, what worries the campaign most at this stage, he says, is not any other candidate or prosecutions, but complacency. Inside the convention center, a man strums a guitar in Nikki Haley's suite. While in DeSantis's suite, people are invited to chuck baseballs at pyramids of Bud Light cans, an allusion to a recent culture war controversy. But the only suite with a line out the door is the one where Trump stands behind a black-clothed barrier, posing for thumbs-up pictures with fans. Annette Hoover, a 75-year-old retired saleswoman from Indianola, tells me she is Trump all the way and has been since the beginning. I can see what's been going on is affecting him, she says, looking genuinely pained. It's awful what they've been doing to him. Hoover enjoyed listening to all the candidates, but only one of them, to her, is a president. He is an asshole, to be honest, but that's what it takes to deal with the people he deals with, she says. We've got to get him back. We are in a world of hurt right now. But DeSantis, she says, might make a good vice president. We move on now to a section on the oceans. 2030, The Healing Sea. In a quest to preserve the zones that let oceans thrive, ecologist Enric Sala heads for the South Pacific. And this was written by Aaron Baker.
Enric Sala, marine ecologist, conservationist, and ocean advocate, is standing under a life-size replica of a northern Atlantic right whale at the Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. And the air outside is smudged with wildfire smoke drifting down from Canada. It's not surprising that Sala wants to talk about the smoke or about whales. Their poop, however, is an unexpected twist. According to Sala, whale excrement, or more precisely, the lack of it, has a role to play in the choking miasma that has forced my interview with one of the world's foremost ocean explorers indoors instead of out on a boat. It may seem like a stretch, the kind that relates to environmentalists that relegates environmentalists deep into woo-woo territory, but as our conversation unfolds, it starts making sense. Whale poop fertilizes ocean plankton. The plankton reproduces rapidly, absorbing carbon dioxide as it photosynthesizes sunlight. Eventually, it sinks to the seafloor, trapping the planet-warming gas in layers of sediment. Fewer whales means less plankton sequestering carbon dioxide, leaving more of it in the atmosphere. That means more of the heat driving the wildfires that have smoked out much of North America. Suddenly, we are seeing that the impacts of climate change are not something that is going to be suffered by somebody else, says Sala. It's here. And so it is. In the wildfires, heat waves, and floods that have made the weather of summer 2023 some of the most extreme on record. Greater biodiversity, whether it's found in the ocean's whale populations or the old growth forests that also store carbon, can help mitigate the effect of burning fossil fuels much more cheaply than any new technology, he says. The more nature we have, the more nature will be able to absorb our impacts. Sala's links between healthy ocean ecosystems and human benefits like carbon sequestration are backed up by science that he has either committed to memory or conducted himself. But it's the ability to break scientific complexity into simple concepts that even landlubbers can comprehend that makes him so effective as an ocean advocate, helping rally global governments to commit to protecting 30% of their coastlines and ocean territories by the year 2030. His pristine seas project, sponsored by the National Geographic Society, has identified dozens of the ocean's most biodiverse hotspots in an effort to call for their protection. Already, he has managed to get a 2.5 million square mile of coastline and ocean set aside in 26 marine protected areas, an expanse twice the size of India, where fishing, dumping, mining, and other destructive industries are prohibited. On May 24th, Pristine Sea's scientific research ship, the EV Argo, lifted anchor for its most ambitious undertaking yet, a five-year expedition to the remote tropical Pacific, where Sala plans not only to chart the world's biggest ocean from its unplumbed depths to its more familiar shores, but also to document the complex links between marine ecosystems and the lives they support on land 
in order to build a case for their conservation. The ocean needs help more than ever. The morning of our meeting, the European Climate Monitoring Agency reported that May 2023 has seen the highest ocean temperatures on record, increasing ocean acidity, weakening marine ecosystems, and forcing coral polyps to expel their colorful symbiotic zooxanthellae algae in a near-death phenomenon called bleaching. By the end of July, waters off the coast of Florida had reached jacuzzi temperatures and volunteers were racing to transfer fragile coral sprouts to indoor aquariums before they cooked to death. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, about 40% of the world's oceans are currently experiencing a marine heat wave, with as much as 50% forecast for September. The ocean has already absorbed more than 90% of the planet's greenhouse gas-fueled warming, explains Sala, but it will not be able to absorb our impacts for much longer without serious consequences. The havoc wreaked on coral reefs destroys habitats that nurse, nourish, or shelter a quarter of all marine life, including the fish that provide critical protein and income to a billion people around the world. Goods and services provided by reefs in the form of tourism, shoreline protection, food, and fisheries are valued at $2.7 trillion a year. The economic consequences of reef loss are grim and looming ever closer, says Sala. A two degree centigrade or higher rise in average global temperatures since humans started burning fossil fuels for energy would be enough to wipe out an estimated 99% of existing coral reefs. The month of July already averaged a 1.5 degree centigrade rise. I find that I am rarely invited back to dinner parties, he deadpans. Still, says Sala, there is hope. His research has proved again and again that given the space to recover undisturbed from human exploitation, nature can pounce back. A marine protected area cannot make that water cooler, cannot protect from warming, but what we know is that fully protected areas are more resilient. He has watched pristine reef systems, bleached white by marine heat waves, recover within five years, but only when they have their full cohort of predators like sharks, along with the smaller inhabitants they prey upon. A reef, he says, isn't just made up of coral. A reef is a delicately balanced ecosystem that includes bacteria, algae, plants, clams, crabs, urchins, herbivores, and the carnivores that keep them all in check. Take one element out and the entire system becomes unstable. You board a plane and the pilot informs you that five screws are missing, but you don't know which ones and from where. Would you still fly? Sala's solution for protecting the ocean from rising heat is simple. Identify the richest areas of biodiversity and protect them from human intervention. Left alone, 
The resulting abundance will eventually spill over into unprotected zones, stocking new areas with fish that can be harvested for human consumption, while allowing for the evolution of genetic adaptation to a changing climate. MPAs, says Sala, are like an interest-bearing savings account. As long as you don't touch the principal, you can live off the interest. The only way to get more from the ocean is to have more life in the ocean, he says. And the only way to have more marine life is to set some places aside so it can thrive. It's as simple as this. As an avid snorkeler growing up close to the near barren waters of Spain's Costa Brava, Sala always assumed that the lush underwater gardens of his favorite Jacques Cousteau documentaries could be found only in faraway tropical paradises. A chance scuba lesson in the Medes Islands Marine Park, one of Spain's first MPAs, taught him that the Mediterranean could be just as much an underwater wonderland when it was protected from the region's industrial fishing fleets. Everything that was missing from the sea of my childhood was there, he recalls. The grouper, the sea bass, the scorpion fish, the octopus, the sea bream. That epiphany sparked an interest in marine conservation. And with a PhD in ecology, he went on to help establish the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation in 2000 at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. But despite his tenured position, generous research grants, and the opportunity to work with the best ocean scientists in the world, he felt something was missing. The places that I was studying were falling under the force of the relentless human sledgehammer, he wrote in his 2020 memoir, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Corals and seagrasses were dying everywhere, and fish were being taken out of the water faster than they could reproduce. Lush underwater gardens full of large animals were being turned into dead reefs overgrown by brown algae and murky jellyfish dystopias. I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of ocean life. He felt, he says, like a doctor telling his patient how they would die, without offering a cure. So he quit and went in search of a cure. Pristine Seas was inspired by a National Geographic story about an explorer who trekked across Central Africa and persuaded the president of Gabon to create a chain of national parks to protect the region's wildlife. Sala wondered if the same could be done for the oceans. In 2007, Sala approached the National Geographic Society with a proposal to combine exploration, research, policy, and documentary film to build a case for local governments to establish national marine protected areas. He envisioned Pristine as a kind of scientific SWAT team, refining our understanding of ocean life, by sending divers, submersibles, and cameras into waters previously unplumbed by research, and wondering and working with economists, ecologists, and climate scientists to calculate the value of preserving what they found. Since 2008, the program has conducted 38 expeditions, produced 30 documentaries, and published more than 250 peer-reviewed studies that have upended long-hand assumptions about marine ecosystems including the power of highly protected areas to rapidly restore depleted fish, coral reefs, and kelp forests in adjacent waters. 
in a 2021 paper for the publication Nature, Sala demonstrated that protecting 30% of the ocean would also deliver benefits for commercial fisheries and carbon sequestration. He identified key areas that if protected, those key areas would provide the most benefit in terms of nature conservation, food production, and climate mitigation, a kind of more bang for your buck protection checklist that he is now trying to persuade local governments to implement. Overall, Pristine Seas has helped midwife a total of 26 marine protected areas into existence, raising the percentage of protected ocean from 1% to 8%. That's still significantly less than the 30% that scientists say is necessary to protect ocean biodiversity. Sala visibly flinches when reminded of that shortfall and acknowledges the pressures piling up since he started 15 years ago, from a quadrupling of plastic waste to higher temperatures and increased fishing pressures. Now I'm working on the cure, but the patient keeps getting worse and worse, he concedes. We fix the lungs, but oh, now there's something wrong with the liver. Oh, and there's a blood clot. Oh, yeah. It's a Sisyphean's task, but that's what makes me keep going. Even though it's a Sisyphean task, I don't see a bigger purpose than working to save life on Earth. In a 2009 expedition to Kirkbody's Southern Line Islands, a chain of uninhabited atolls 1,800 miles southwest of Hawaii, Sala found reefs that had never seen pressure from commercial fisheries, a thriving coral jungle full of large fish. Before then, he says, scientists had no idea what pristine reefs looked like. In 2015 and 16, disaster struck. A marine heat wave triggered coral bleaching in more than half the reef. Sala thought he was witnessing the destruction of one of the ocean's last intact coral colonies. But a return visit in 2022 demonstrated a miraculous recovery. Coral was growing back, and the fish were as plentiful as they had ever been. It recovered like a phoenix rising from the ashes, says Sala. Documenting the reef's recovery wasn't enough. Sala wanted to understand why those corals survived the heat when so many other reefs did not, and how that recovery could be replicated elsewhere. Sala theorized that small grazing fish had kept the bleached coral free of the brown algae that usually takes over, enabling the coral polyps to regain their zooxanthinellae and start growing again. In June, Pristine Seas returned to the area in one of the first stops of its new Pacific expedition, in part to test Sala's hypothesis. Was it the presence of large numbers of fish? Or because larvae from other less affected corals were able to take root among the ruins. Had the surviving corals evolved some sort of heat resistance? If we believe that high protection is a key ingredient for coral resilience, we need this data, he says. One of the most effective components of Salo's Pristine Seas expedition is the opportunity to offer a front row seat for the ocean's underwater marvels, to the people who can make a difference. We take presidents, ministers with us. They come out of the submarine saying, that was the most transformative experience of my life, says Sala. 
Once they make the emotional connection, Sala presents them with the economic case for protection and the policy proposals that help them sell it to their people. After going out with pristine seas in 2022, then-Colombian President Ivan Duque more than doubled the country's marine protected areas, bringing it within reach of the 30% goal, and joining forces with regional neighbors Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Panama to establish the largest protected marine zone in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world. It is this combination of action-oriented research and passionate advocacy that has enabled Sala to be so effective, says Jennifer Jackett, a fisheries researcher and visiting professor of environmental science at the University of Miami, who has co-authored papers with Sala. He is someone who understands that advances in science are incremental and that actually the most urgent problems are social ones that require politics and policies and advocacies, things that many scientists don't feel comfortable with. Equally at ease, slipping into a wetsuit on the deck of the EV Argo, he is networking in a shirt and tie at Davos. Sala has a passion that is infectious and incredibly effective at captivating the people who have the most power to protect our oceans, government leaders. Jane Lubchenko, a marine ecologist who led NOAA from 2009 to 2013 and a co-author on the Nature MPA paper, recalls watching him present his early findings to a panel of Norwegian lawmakers in 2018 to help rally support for a global commitment to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. Going in, says Lubchenko, they were dead set against it convinced that MPAs would harm the country's lucrative fishing industry. But, as Sala spoke, you could feel the tone of the room change, she says. Before they had been told that they had to choose between fisheries and biodiversity, or between climate change benefits and food security. His message was that if you use science to pay attention to where these hotspots are, you can actually maximize it, maximize it all. Nobel Foundation Executive Director Vidar Helgeson, as Norway's then Minister of Climate and the Environment, had invited Sala to, pre to present. Eric's impressive presentation, and not least his case that protection actually increases fishery volumes, served to strengthen the hand of those supporting protection and weaken the resistance of others, he says. Norway went on to support the 30% target, and, as chair of the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, encouraged other countries, including fishing stalwart Japan, to follow suit. More than advocacy, more than science, Sala's key points for ocean protection is hope. As fish stocks dwindle and ocean temperatures rise, Sala offers a solution that doesn't even require a sacrifice, just an adjustment. It's a potent antidote to the endless parade of doomsday scenarios that dominate today's climate conversation, says Lubchenko. Offering an option to protect and restore the vibrancy of oceanic ecosystems is very attractive because people can actually see that there is something they can do. Could such a policy be applied to the whole of the Mediterranean? 
Sala pauses in front of the exhibit of sea fan coral, a species that is all but gone from his old snorkeling grounds off the coast of Spain. His face flickers with emotion as he imagines what a protected Mediterranean would look like. Before you get in the water, you will see monk seals on the beach, he says. There would be kelp forests 60 meters deep. Lots of fish, including very large groupers, starfish and shrimp, and lots of lobsters. And octopuses. More of everything, he whispers, before anchoring himself back into reality. The Mediterranean of the future is not going to be like the Mediterranean of the past. For one... It's warmer than it used to be, and invasive species have made it a permanent home. But we can still make sure it's better than it is now. We just have to leave enough of it alone. And that will conclude my uh, sharing of Time Magazine with you. I need to remind you again that you've been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. And materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share the September 4th, 2023 issue of Time Magazine with you. <laughs>